Good afternoon. It's Friday the 7th of July 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we've got Patrick Henningsen uh, and uh, Debbie Evans. Evans, uh, welcome to the program both. Uh, we're going to get straight on with uh, the online safety bill. Uh, and this was being discussed in the House of Lords yesterday. Uh, as you can see, there were actually a few people turned up for that. Um, so it was being debated yesterday uh, and the pressure on the government uh, over online safety continues to build. And I think this is good news. Uh, but the fundamental, fundamental issue that I've raised in the past still stands, and that is that the bill as it's currently drafted relies on extremely key but unknown details about uh, which are only going to become clear after secondary legislation has been published at some point in the future. So this bill uh, will go through with really a lot of its functionality not understood. Uh, and of course, uh, Ofcom hasn't written the codes of practice, which will be enabled by this bill as well. Uh, so in the Lords yesterday, they were talking about exemptions on certain services uh, from regulation under the Act. Uh, so here is uh, Lord Alan of Hallam. Uh, he was saying there's a material risk uh, that without further amendment or clarification, uh, then Wikipedia and other similar services may feel they can no longer operate in the United Kingdom. Uh, so they're looking for exemptions uh, for services which are considered to be non-commercial, but in the public interest. Uh, this was uh, uh, Lord Moyland. So we, we just heard from a Liberal Democrat. This is Lord Moyland, the Tory peer. The fact that the government have not come forward with any suggestions or amendments to address this at all is truly remarkable. So the problems still exist with the online safety bill with respect to freedom of speech uh, and the regulation, the regulatory burden on various platforms. Uh, but uh, let's just keep in mind that the latest argument uh, here is over uh, encryption and privacy. Um, so here is uh, an open letter that's been published uh, two days ago. I think this was Wednesday. Uh, open letter from security and privacy researchers in relation to the online safety bill. And they're saying in this letter, we wish to highlight alarming misunderstandings and misconceptions around the online safety bill and its interaction uh, with the privacy and security technologies that our daily online interaction, interactions and communication uh, rely on. Uh, and they're basically saying that uh, the government is, when in the drafting of this bill, is uh, from a technological point perspective, illiterate, uh, and therefore the bill is going to have a chilling effect on the way we do our daily business online. And of course, this is something we've been warning about at the UK column for quite a long time. So we just put that back on screen again. Let's just have a look at the uh, the list of signatories. Uh, they're all various professors and uh, PhDs from various universities uh, right across the country. And in fact, uh, not only in the United Kingdom. Uh, but in the meantime, here is uh, Conservative Home and uh, Siobhan Bailey, MP. Uh, the online safety bill lets enforce verification online and so give people more power, information and control. And so the moves to push for uh, a, a sort of mandatory digital ID continue. This is what she said in her article in Conservative Home yet. As I exposed in my campaign about anonymous abuse, the elephant in the room is fake and anonymous accounts. Uh, research from Cleanup the Internet found the ability to easily create anonymous, fake and deceptive social media accounts is a common enabler of pretty much every form of fraud perpetrated online. Uh, so the push for digital ID and verification of identity uh, continues. Uh, but as we say, the uh, issue of uh, uh, being able to, to uh, encrypt your communications online is very much the main uh, front in the battle of, of online safety at the moment. Uh, and uh, well, Meredith uh, Whitaker 
from uh, Signal uh, was interviewed on Channel 4 News uh, yesterday. Uh, let's just have a listen quickly to what she had to say. There is no way to create a backdoor that only the good guys can walk through. And what's being proposed here in the context of end-to-end -end encryption is a backdoor. And we know from decades of history, from decades of serious research, that there's no such thing as a safe backdoor. If the British police can get in, hackers can get in. If the British police can get in, hostile nations can get in. If the British police can get in, Putin can get in. The Iranian government can get in, and others wanting to do harm can get in. So it's really important that we maintain the security and the integrity of these systems. So we have another clip to follow, but Patrick, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because, I mean, she absolutely has a point. She does have a, a great point there. I, I can do without the hyperbole about the uh, Putin and the Iranians wanting to do harm. How exactly were they going to do harm to the uh, British public? But put that aside, um, she's talking about, you know, things akin to, you know, having uh, government approved spyware on your devices uh, so that the government can have a backdoor. Should the companies not want to uh, uh, play ball with the government on this, they might still be compelled to use some kind of a third party tool or something like that. I don't know if you've heard anything along those lines. Uh, well, we certainly have, and we'll come on to that in one second. Uh, but of course, the person that was uh, sitting beside her in that little interview was uh, Damien Collins, MP, uh, former chair of the uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. And he has been a rabid uh, pro proponent of this online harms legislation to shut down everything, shut down freedom of speech, shut down a whole lot of uh, behavior uh, online. Uh, so let's just have a listen to how he came back at uh, uh, Meredith Whitaker and then how she retorted against him. Let's have a look at this. I, I agree with Meredith on that point. I mean, there are, I don't I didn't think it would be safe to have a, to say there's a safe back door because if you, once you create it, other people will, will find it as well. That's why we're not going to ask companies to break encryption. What the regulator would, would do, I would imagine with a company like um, Signal, is when the regulator Ofcom is creating the codes of practice, they might say to Signal, well, what sort of data do you gather? Uh, and if Signal says, well, we don't gather data about people's messages, we can't possibly look at this. The regulator won't say you need to break encryption. It'll say that's fine. But you do have policies, let's say, on legal and appropriate use. How do you enforce those? What do you right. do? Yeah. None of that is specified in the bill. And this is our concern because we hear, you know, we hear things that are sensible like mm -hmm. that from people like you. And then we look at the bill and what is specified is a regime that would give Ofcom the power to demand that everyone in the UK download spyware that checks their messages before they're sent against a database of what is permissible to say and send and what is not permissible. And so, that is a precedent that authoritarian regimes are looking to the UK to set, to point to a liberal democracy that was the first to expand surveillance in the terms of the UN Human Rights Commissioner. This is unprecedented paradigm-shifting surveillance and paradigm-shifting not in the good way. So again, Patrick, it's, it's hard to uh, be able to argue with that point of view. Yeah, so, so the problem we have with this is what happened in the U.S. is the government could say, oh, we're not, you know, sharing this with anybody. It's strictly for, you know, the FBI or something like that. And what you, ha what you have is then governments uh, uh, trading this uh, information and data between agencies, between government agencies, totally out of public view. And also, even, even so, a government's purchasing uh, data that's been scraped by you know, private companies for various reasons could be for advertising or something like that, and then taking that data from third parties. So this is happening. It's just completely rife. So what she's talking about there is particularly egregious, 
and that's a kind of some mandatory, you know, government spyware on your device on the assumption that you might cause a crime. So there's no the whole uh, the whole pro, uh, um, concept of probable cause uh, is 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 completely out the window. So yes. or you know, so yeah, it's, it, this is a fundamental alteration of our you know rights going right back to the Magna Carta. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, let's just look at this because we mentioned this uh, a week or so ago, I think, because the, the Senate in France had agreed uh, the police should be allowed to remotely activate phone cameras and microphones and spy on people. But now it has actually gone through the entire process and this bill has uh, become law. So let's just bring a quote on screen. During the debate on Wednesday, the members of parliament in the camp of Emmanuel uh, Macron inserted an amendment limiting the use of remote spying to quote, when justified by the nature and seriousness of the crime uh, and for strictly proportional duration. And they also noted that uh, a judge must approve any use of the provision while the total duration of the surveillance cannot exceed six months. Nonetheless, this is a very dangerous and slippery slope. Uh, in the meantime, in the United States, uh, this is an interesting story uh, in AP. Judge limits Biden administration in working with social media companies. So a uh, judge in, on Tuesday prohibited several federal agencies and officials of the Biden administration from working with social media companies uh, over protected speech. Uh, and uh, this is a decision is uh, called a blow to censorship uh, by one of the Republican officials whose lawsuit brought the ruling, says Associated Press. So this is a, a pretty good uh, development on that side as well. The pushback continues. Uh, but I just wanted to bring this back on screen for a third time, so I do apologize. Uh, but this was the uh, document that I put out on Monday, which I mistakenly put out on Monday because it turned out to be fake, saying that Manuel Macron was, uh, in fact, restricting the use of internet uh, for certain areas where there were trouble on the streets. Uh, and, of course, that document proved to be a fake document. Nonetheless, uh, French media... Uh, showing that, in fact, he has refused to rule out this provision in the future. So I just wanted to highlight that. So let's bring it on screen, this uh, quick uh, quote here. If we do a translation, in the event of a crisis, Emmanuel Macron does not rule out cutting social networks. He said, we, we need to have a reflection on social networks, on the prohibitions that we must put in place. Uh, and when things get carried away, uh, we may have to put ourselves in the position to regulate the internet or cut it off, is basically what he's saying there. So... Uh, in the meantime, uh, Patrick, uh, what's going on with Julian Assange? Urged uh, a little over a week ago here, declassified UK, uh, Matt Kennard, the very good report. And there seems to be some evidence here of something that we all suspected at the time, but we didn't quite have the exact receipts for it. Headline reads, uh, Crown Prosecution Services has destroyed all records of Keir Starmer's four trips to Washington here. So this is regarding the, the U.S. records which show Starmer met with Attorney General Eric Holder and a host of other American and British national security officials in Washington in 2011 when he was in charge of Julian Assange's proposed extradition to Sweden for the sort of fitted up sex case that ended up collapsing three times because there was no uh, provenance to it. But nonetheless, so this is interesting. And here's here are the real points here. We'll bring these bullet points up one by one. And Starmer was in Washington three times while in charge of Assange's proposed extradition to Sweden. So clearly taking instructions from the U.S. government there or some sort of uh, collusion, perhaps, 
Starmer led a five-person British delegation that met with Holder for 45 minutes in Washington on November of 2011. And furthermore, the delegation included the UK liaison prosecutor to the US who dealt with extradition. So think about this for a minute. There was this denial that there was a plan to extradite. And this is why Julian Assange took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy, because he suspected that that was the case. This was all written off and you know dismissed as a conspiracy theory at the time. Well, we have the receipts here. This is absolutely what was in the what was in the works. So the meeting also attended by the head of the DOJ's National Security Division. That's not trivial. And the CPS refuses to clarify to declassified UK if destruction of the Washington documents is a routine procedure. And the reason they, they were destroyed quite clearly is because they prove that there was a sort of advanced uh, planning, advanced coordination, a conspiracy, if you will, to put Julian Assange either on indefinite arbitrary detention, which was the case, according to the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, um, but not only that, but prepare the ground for extradition, whereby the British or the Swedes, turns out to be the British, would keep him on ice for as long as necessary that you might, the United States might need to bring him back. Now, Eric Holder's uh, DOJ at the time under Obama didn't go for the superseding indictments and to go all out um, in, in terms of indictments to bring Assange to the U.S. at the time, but the Trump administration did. And what that tells us is that there was probably this case had been prepared even in advance of Donald Trump. So that the, the, they just hadn't pulled the trigger yet. So this is interesting. And, you know, one wonders, Mike, whether Keir Starmer was rewarded uh, for this and other things, perhaps, as he uh, sort of moved up in the world uh, very soon after this. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Good question. Right. So now let's uh, move on. Patrick, you've been in Brussels this week uh, discussing the World uh, Health Organization Pandemic Treaty. Yeah, yeah, we went to Brussels to the EU Parliament, my first time uh, to the EU Parliament. Uh, the EU Parliament, the people's pushback against the WHO pandemic tyranny. We're talking about the pandemic treaty and the international health recommendations, stroke regulations here. And we can see the photo here in this article here. We'll, we'll summarize this in a minute, but that's a, a team of dissenting MEPs led by, of course, uh, Christine Anderson uh, from Germany there but her colleagues from Romania, Croatia, uh, and France. And now this is an interesting development because what was launched here was the European Citizens Initiative, okay? So this is actually, um, I know this is going to sound like an oxymoron and a shock to people, but there are actually democratic mechanisms in the EU. I know, it's shocking, um, but the European Citizens Initiative is one of them whereby citizens can come together from multiple EU countries, which is what happened here, um, in order to bring an issue up and, and per, perhaps influence policy. This is you know, a revolutionary in terms of Brussels, has happened before. I don't know about this issue here. And this is, you can see some of the people on the panel there, Nick Hudson in the foreground uh, as well. Nathaniel Pavlowski, he is the son of the Canadian pastor, uh, Arthur uh, uh, Pavlowski. From Canada. He's there as well. Uh, Fiona Hine, she's an activist uh, from London on this issue. Andrew Bridgen, you can see uh, in the background. And then Philip Cruz, Swiss lawyer, who also was with uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics on one of the symposiums that uh, you did, Mike, uh, as well, uh, that we did previously. 
So uh, they all had uh, an opportunity to speak. The MEPs were also uh, giving statements on this, as are the activists here. There's more details uh, forthcoming on this uh, 21st century wire here. Andrew Bridgen gave a, a quick reaction um, to this after this session. It seemed like a really successful meeting overall to raise awareness. But here's what a uh, uh, former conservative MP, now reclaimed party MP, Andrew Bridgen had to say. Andrew Bridgen, MP, uh, how do you think the event went today and what do you think the important takeaway points are for this? Well, it's not the European Union, it's more like the United Nations itself, wasn't it? We've got a lot of nations from around the world. It's raising the profile if the Citizens' Initiative in the EU could work and stop the WHO power grab. I don't mind where it happens. We're all completely aligned. We, we all know the, the tyranny that's involved in what the WHO through what, through the UN are, are doing to all our citizens. And I don't mind, I'm not proud. Wherever it stops, I'll, I'll, I'll fight and stop it. I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with my European colleagues, whether they're MEPs or, or members of their own local parliament. Um, the sooner we turn the page on this dark chapter in our human history, the better for all of us. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. So I had I had discussion with, uh, with Christina Anderson off stage afterwards, and she said, you know, it's going to be difficult to get this issue um, out through the European Citizens Initiative. It's a challenge, no doubt about it. The odds are against them, but she believes, as do some of the other uh, MEPs and panelists and activists, that by coming together, by bringing this coalition of lawyers, of MEPs, of European citizens, of activists, this broad-based coalition and people from very different political stripes on this, coming together, they'll be able to even override um, the restrictions within the often undemocratic European Union uh, in order to go straight to the public. And Philip Cruz, the uh, lawyer from Switzerland, who's kind of leading one of the leaders of the legal effort there, he said that by, by bringing this up as an international issue here, by using this platform, they'll be able to then push it into their national parliaments. And he said, that's where that really needs to be. It needs to be on the national parliamentary level, the, your, your national and local government level. That's where the big difference is because that's where the pushback, that's where you can exert your sovereignty against this clearly what is a WHO uh, uh, power grab uh, to implement these pandemic uh, uh, regulations that give the WHO an unbelievable amount of power to declare a pandemic when it starts, when it finishes, vaccine mandates, restrictions, you name it, a treaty is legally binding under international law. So there's a, we have a year, more or less, it's going to come up again in May of 2024. So there is time. So the, this, is, this battle is not finished, even though the WHO's committee have backed down last week. It's not over yet. So they're, they're not going to give up on this. So people need to remain vigilant and to do follow some of the activists and the people who are championing this issue right now. Yeah, okay, and just very briefly, Patrick, then we put this uh, graphic on screen, then uh, I think you wanted to highlight the fact that the EU flag is sitting beside the Ukraine flag there. Uh, oh, I did, yeah, on my tour out the, uh, on my way in, I, I noticed a few things in there and it was a little bit shocking. The, um, the, 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 the presence of Ukraine is everywhere uh, in the European Parliament here. Well, um, I've got a great video actually just we, I can talk over, um, but uh, it was in the previous Sorry. slide. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
There we it's go. A, in the previous slide, there's there's a video. I think you just there it is. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. It's uh. So so this is what you see in the rotunda. Safe internet. Ban on ads targeting children. That's online safety. No more gas for Putin. This this is the the courtyard as you walk into the European Union. Energy independence. Building Europe's autonomy from Russian fuel to all workers. Fair minimum wage by the end of twenty. 24 at the latest democracy in action that's it the european parliament and this was my personal favorite here defending democracy we will stand by ukraine for as long as it takes and breakthrough women will have a fair chance uh, chance at uh, top jobs top jobs because somehow women aren't accessing top jobs so that plus all the net zero carbon propaganda and that's basically like literally walking into the building it is the level of propaganda is like something that is incredible. Not even Soviet uh, times, they could even hold a candle to the EU. They don't even stylize it. It's just raw gaslighting. Yes. It's pretty incredible. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Patrick. Now, Debbie, welcome to the program. And we're going to get started off here talking about patient safety. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. And yes, Dr. Henrietta Hughes at last has got a website and I would like everyone, please go and have a look at her website. This is the front page. And uh, she says she's there to listen to patients, which clearly we know that she's not doing. But she also highlights the oh. Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. Um, it's apparently staggering her that uh, patron that there's a patronizing approach to a patients uh, so let's go and have a look at the report and this indeed was just brought out in um june um and i thought i'd just go and have a look at inside very quickly i just want to really direct people to this to go and actually have a look at it so that let's see what they found the uh, forward includes uh, a few findings failure to make the right diagnosis delays in providing treatment poor handovers between clinicians failure to listen to the concerns of patients or families i mean the report is called broken trust making patient safety more than just a promise and clearly this is a damning indictment and i just put a screenshot of a few of the findings in the comments that you can freeze the screen um, and you can see there, look, lack of support to navigate systems in the aftermath of an incident, failure to make the right diagnosis, inadequate apologies, unsatisfactory learning responses. Clearly, all of these reports are coming out and nobody appears to be learning anything. But one thing you can find on Dr. Henrietta Hughes's uh, website, if you want to, go to her conference, which she's holding on patient safety in September. But I will warn you, thank you to Cheryl for pointing it out. It will cost you £699 to attend. Also on um, Dr. Henrietta Hughes's website is uh, Dr. Alison Cave's blog. Yes, she's writing a blog and she's writing a blog on about uh, pretty much the value of submitting a yellow card. And we all know the reality of submitting a yellow card. So what does she say? She says, once a yellow card report has been submitted by a patient or healthcare provider, it is carefully analysed by our safety experts who include doctors, pharmacists, scientists, and medical device specialists. Their analysis involves an assessment of the data to determine if the reported event may be a safety signal associated with a medicine or medical device, or it would have occurred anyway without medical treatment. 
This is because the nature of yellow card reporting means that the reported events may not be side effects or adverse incidents. It is important that everyone continues to report, even if they are unsure of the, if their reaction is associated with the medicine or medical device. Uh, and then she goes on to say that they have a two-way system of communication. But clearly, that two-way system of communication is just between the MHRA and their scientists of which we know they've only 40 there doesn't seem to be any patient interaction so the patient safety commissioner website exists please go and have a look at it and look at that report now jumping on very quickly to the nhs um, i'm not going to stay too long on the nhs this week even though we should all be singing happy birthday to it because i'm going to devote my next week's blog to the birth of the NHS 75 years ago. And this week we seem to be having party celebrations to perhaps celebrate the death of the NHS as I see it. Um, but of course, Rishi Sunak, there's been lots of stories this week. Rishi Sunak and Steve Barkley have been jeered and uh, they've not had a good reception, but they've decided to give the NHS, as we know, a present of a massive workforce. Now, before we get too excited, let's look at this workforce and they're pledging that it should grow by almost 1 million by 2036. And I'm not quite sure who they're going to be training, but it seems to be that the training is going to be reduced for most professionals. And I thought anyway, the NHS was being taken over by robots. Um, and to celebrate the birthday of the NHS, what better article to have than The Independent this week, which says that the NHS is collapsing um, and these are leading medics, uh, apparently sort of staying in a corridor now is is the norm so on the week we should be celebrating and mps are doing runs and goodness knows what it's far from a birthday it's probably a funeral and thank you very much to a tweet that was sent to me um indicating that southampton hospital um all of a sudden the public land of which the nhs hospital is on appears to have been sold with no public consultation now there are ANPR cameras being assembled and it appears to be private land. So if anybody knows any more about that, do let us know. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Let's uh, change topics again. And Patrick, uh, let's move on to Ukraine. Uh, you're muted, Patrick. Let's just do a little important update here. Uh, there was a lot of talk it kind of ramped up at the end of June about Russia wanting to attack itself at the Zeppelin nuclear power plant. And this, you see this Zelensky was tweeting at all the U.S. media, British uh, MPs, reporters, all crowing the same script talking point that this is coming. So here's Luke Harding, the uh, mercurial uh, journalist, I guess you could call him for The Guardian. And he's, this is him right July 4th, just a couple of days ago. You can see he's standing opposite with his Russian-held nuclear power plants, saying the situation in Zaporizhia nuclear power plant behind me yesterday is alarming. Kiev says the Russians have placed explosives today on top of the reactors, three and four, ahead of a possible false flag operation. Russian telegram channels report imminent Ukraine attack. This is like a double reverse psyop here. And so with Luke Harding, the man who fabricated so many stories, including that uh, Paul Manafort visited Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy multiple times, and that story was never retracted by The Guardian, uh, 
Luke Harding. There he is right here uh, on screen. This is Luke Harding. And so I would call this a false flag alert. I don't know. Are we on the Luke Harding slide? Still? No, we've, we've done that. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we've got to. Okay. Right. Sorry, you threw me off there. Okay. So what slide are we on now? So see. we're on to the FT and military briefing. Right. Okay. So, uh, so this is from the Financial Times. Uh, and you can see the cynicism in this headline here, uh, military briefing, Ukraine provides the ideal testing ground for Western weaponry. So what are we talking about? All sorts of dangerous weaponry, including depleted uranium and what we'll come on to in a second, which is cluster bombs. But just the cynicism in this Financial Times article by Roman um, Olian, I can't pronounce his last name, unfortunately. Uh, but the cynicism in this article is just astounding, absolutely astounding. So uh, moving on to the next slide. Uh, so here, this this is the setup for the cluster bomb story, which we're getting here. Uh, this was an exclusive at CNN. You can see Zelensky is completely half cut in this exclusive interview. I, I don't know how you can call anything exclusive with Zelensky because he's doing photo ops and interviews on multiple uh, segments per day. So he's saying that the counteroffensive uh, should have started much earlier to preempt Russian defenses. So apparently the counteroffensive still hasn't gotten off the ground yet, uh, unfortunately. So we've got a little clip from Zelensky um, around the same time. And just the vitriol, the unhinged nature of, of what he's saying is unbelievable. Let's, let, let's watch this and read the subtitles. What NATO? унеможливлювати застосування Росією ядерної зброї. Але, що важливо, я ще раз звертаюся до міжнародної спільноти, як це було до 24-го. Превентивні удари, щоб вони знали, що з ними буде, якщо вони застосують, а не навпаки, чекати ядерних ударів Росію, щоб потім сказати, ах, ти так, ну ось тримай від нас. Переглянути застосування свого тиску. Ось я вважаю, що повинна робити НАТО. Переглянути порядок застосувань. Wow. I mean, did what how did you translate that, Mike? Because it sounded to me like he's saying that NATO needs to preempt and and with what? NATO nuclear weapons or attacks in Russia? How did you read that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a hugely dangerous uh statements to be making. There's a hint of desperation there, more than a hint perhaps. Uh, but uh, if you take that in the context of what the Polish government had been saying in the last week or so, where they're, they're saying, well, because Putin has uh, placed nuclear weapons in Belarus, uh, we need American nuclear weapons on Polish ground. Uh, th this escalation is getting, you know, the insanity of it is getting off the charts, really. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the right. So here, L Lindsey Graham's, of course, revving it up as well, saying uh, he's, you know, totally cheering on CNN's interview with Zelensky and saying that uh, this is basically uh, proof that they, we need to give um, ATA CMS cluster munitions and, of course, the F 16s to Ukraine is, so they can win against Russia. Half measures are maddening and only continue to prolong the war and its suffering. So the rhetoric is completely backwards on this, as you can see. And uh, so that's, of course, no surprise there. So this is the controversy of the week. Biden 
um, the difficult decision of whether to give uh, weapons banned by many U.S. allies. What weapons are we talking about here? Well, of course, we're talking about cluster munitions. So cluster bombs, effectively. So Biden it has come under steady pressure from Zelensky, who argues that the munitions uh, which disperse tiny deadly bomblets are the best way to kill Russians who are dumped, uh, d- who are dug into trenches and blocking, blocking Ukraine's vaunted counteroffensive to retake its territory. So again, it's, this is the wep- the wonder weapon of the week. Okay. It was F-16s one week. Uh, it's leopard tanks the other. Now, it, it, now it's like we need cluster bombs. Uh, and this is what's keeping this, this, this much anticipated counteroffensive from happening. We just need more cluster bombs here. So Biden's uh, coming under pressure from Zelensky. And so this is, well, looks like a repeat. Is that a repeat of the previous text? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, that was meant to be another quote. Um, anyway, so, uh, so, so America needs to send illegal weapons, banned weapons uh, to Ukraine uh, in order to win the war, apparently. So if it's cluster bombs this week, it'll be uh, something else next week. And so if you want to get a little more of a deep dive on this, I'm uh, having a, l- a long discussion with uh, international human rights lawyer from France, Arno Develay, uh, who's in Russia at the moment, and about these banned weapons and what the various legal statuses are and uh, whether they're going to make a difference in this. That's on TNT radio, as you can see on screen here. That's Monday to Friday, 5 p.m. Uh, till 7 p.m. Just go to www.tntradio.live. I'll be doing that this evening. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much for that. Now, uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, the NATO conference in Vilnius uh, is, well, the in fact, the opening remarks from uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg uh, happened about an hour ago, or an hour and a half ago. Uh, and, well, they're very excited about it, not least because, of course, uh, Jens Stoltenberg has been uh, or had his, chair, um, his uh, position extended for another year. So NATO allies agreed on Tuesday uh, to extend the mandate of uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg by a further year until the 1st of October uh, 2024. The decision will be endorsed by the NATO heads of state and government at the Vilnius summit. Uh, I think the main action is starting next week, but in the meantime, uh, the uh, leaders of Sweden and Finland and Turkey have been there for meetings to try to uh, discuss whether they can get over the sort of impasse uh, with Turkey over uh, uh, membership and so on. Uh, and uh, well, in the meantime, of course, uh, Zelensky will be speaking as well. Uh, now, he uh, just want to re- reiterate what uh, Patrick was saying about uh, Zaporozhye and the insanity of uh, of Zelensky's position on this, because as part of the, the uh, in the run up to the Vilnius conference, he was absolutely saying uh, that uh, uh, this false flag is going to happen. Uh, he's saying that uh, very importantly, the situation at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, the whole world must now realize that common security depends entirely on global attention to the actions of the occupiers of the plant. So uh, he, the, he intends to take this narrative uh, with him uh, to the, uh, the NATO conference. Uh, and we'll see, we'll be reporting on that next week, of course. Okay, let's uh, move on. And uh, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, But please do share material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org. 
and UK column extracts.co.uk. Uh, now, uh, we've got an interview with Cheryl Granger on the website at the moment. Uh, what did Pfizer know? A shot in the dark. Uh, get uh, over to that and share that as widely as possible if you can. Uh, Debbie's blog is, uh, the latest Debbie's blog is on the, the website as well. Uh, and you can see the main topics uh, being discussed there. Uh, we'd like to uh, mention uh, this, uh, Education Not War Indoctrination, Sex Education Age 3. This is at the uh, Senate in Cardiff Bay on Tuesday the 11th of July. Uh, this is Public Child Protection Wales uh, with another public event uh, meeting at 12pm on Tuesday the 11th of July, if you can get along to that. And then finally, we'd like to remind everybody that uh, this evening at Glastonbury, uh, the Great Net Zero debate is taking place, uh, begins at 17.45, so that's quarter to six. Uh, details on screen. Uh, if you aren't able to get to Glastonbury, we will be broadcasting that live on the UK column in the usual places, so ukcolumn.org slash live. And obviously, if you're a community member, uh, you can uh, find it on community.ukcolumn.org slash live. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, and uh, we're, we're looking at, speaking of green topics, uh, Debbie, Lithium. Yeah, anything but green. Um, your, uh, uh, your segment last week about the wind turbine exploding really sent uh, shivers down my spine and, uh, and alarm bells. So I went to look at this further. And um, let's look at the government's resilience for the future. Um, just as important as life sciences seems to be critical minerals. The UK has pockets of mineral wealth from the Scottish Highlands to the tip of Cornwall and clusters of expertise in refining and min material manufacturing. So as I'm in Cornwall, let's look at Cornish Lithium because um, Cornish Lithium, there you can see a, a screenshot which will give you an idea of what do we use lithium iodine, iodide sorry, batteries for. And you can see we use them for everything, including, I might say, something else that's not on the list there, which is medical devices. So lithium is a big thing, although Cornish lithium, I have to say, are needing more investment. Apparently, they're struggling. So I decided to drive up the road only 10 minutes from, from my house. And there we have the British lithium, lithium pilot plant. And you can see the security there, but it's funded by Innovate. Um, let's remind ourselves who Innovate are. Innovate are a, a non non-department government bodies sponsored by the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology. Um, so just knowing that I've got that up the road, um, I thought I'd drive up um, and I'd go and have a look at what was just 10 minutes up the road. Now, this is a silent video because when I actually got to the top of the hill, it's in Quarryland, and I didn't realise when I was speaking that the wind was absolutely howling, so you can't hear me. But I want you to know that the there are significant environmental risks with mining lithium. It can be fatal for aquatic um, aquatic life. It, it can pollute the water. It takes one ton of lithium to, to mine one ton of lithium. It takes five hundred thousand gallons of water. Now this is Cornwall, and we're on a hosepipe ban here with Southwest Water, and yet this water. Um, contamination and the amount of water that needs to be used is pretty much unsustainable. It can also contaminate drinking water. So um, I was just staggered really because there were security gates, as you can see, absolutely everywhere. And you can't really see beyond the quarry. 
So I just thought I'd take that to, to, to show you. And then I wanted to show you the effects of what is coming out of the ground and where we're using lithium batteries. Now, there's an e-bike, according to the BBC, igniting every two days. This is, these, these are in people's front rooms. And this isn't just e-bikes. These are other, other devices as well. So I thought I'd just put a couple of pieces of video together to show you what happens. Now, this video is silent. And the reason I've chosen this, these couple of videos is because nobody was harmed. But I'm sad to say that there are many deaths caused by charging up. And as you can see, it smokes for a while. And you think, oh, my goodness, where's the smoke coming from? And then it suddenly exploded. So five seconds for the room to fill up with smoke. Um, here you've got a bus. You can see the start of the fire. It just starts to smoke and then you get sparks everywhere. And then it literally just explodes. But this isn't just happening with buses. It's not just happening with e-bikes. There are plenty of videos online where phones are exploding in people's pockets, laptops are exploding. And some experts are saying that these batteries that are in these devices are literally incendiaries. So, and I know of a few youngsters that actually charge their phones under their pillows. So um, charging anything at night is a risk. And I just wanted to highlight that to you and highlight it to everybody because I think all of us have got a smart device of one type or another. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these are valid concerns. I mean, the the uh, issue of uh, lithium ion battery fires is a problem because, of course, they're extremely difficult to put out. Uh, and even if you have a fire extinguisher in your home uh, for, for the kitchen or whatever, that that is not going to help. Um, so personally, I would not be charging anything uh, in terms of e-bikes or similar products inside the house at all. Um, and uh, as you say, you've got to just keep an eye on on phones and laptops. Uh, I mean, generally, you get a reasonable Debbie. You get a reasonable warning with these things because they start to swell. Uh, and if you've got a if you've got a battery that's starting to swell and you're starting to see the shape of the the uh, uh, the phone or the you know the back of the phone starting to swell out, you want to be getting rid of that phone as quickly as possible, getting the battery changed as quickly as possible. So these are. Uh, Reasonable points you make, so thank you for that. Now, Patrick, uh, let's uh, change topics again and move to the United States. Uh, and what's going on at the border? Well, it, the U.S. southern border immigration crisis, of course, we're all familiar with this. You've seen it in the news. Um, and I'm going to highlight this uh, excellent uh, report here uh, at the Gatestone Institute. Now, mind you, uh, this is a partisan think tank. Um, but the Gatestone Institute for International Policy Council. So uh, more on the kind of right wing, if you will. Um, but nonetheless, this is uh, by a Turkish journalist uh, who's a uh, distinguished fellow at the Gatestone Institute. Um, Uze uh, Bolut is her name or his name. I'm not sure uh, what they are, but uh, we'll take the quote here. Whether intentional or not uh, can be argued that the U.S. government has become the middleman in a large scale multi-billion dollar child trafficking operation run by bad actors seeking to profit off the lives of children. The HSS, that's the Department of uh, Health and Human Services in the U.S., did everything they could to keep all of this silent. This is uh, a quote here by Tara Lee Rodas, who's a testimony before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on 
immigration, uh, integrity, security, enforcement. This is just in the last April, uh, just a, two months ago. Uh, and here's another, um, also quite a strong statement here. It's from a Florida grand jury testimony. Some of the children coming over the U.S. southern border they're talking about here um, are not children at all, but full-grown predatory adults. Uh, some are already gang members or criminal actors. Others, I'm talking about children here, are coerced into prostitution or sex slavery. Some are recycled to be used as human visas by criminal organizations. Some are consigned to relatives who funnel them into sweatshops to pay off the debt accumulated by their trek to the United States. They're talking about here. Uh, some flee their sponsors and return to their country of origin. Some are abandoned by their so-called families and become wards of the dependency system, the criminal justice system, or disappear altogether. So again, from a Florida grand jury testimony, many of these key points, shocking points outlined uh, in this piece here. And so I, I will go so far as to say, having also researched this closely, um, to say that I believe a lot of people are looking at these policies, open borders policies, especially under Democrats, and saying this doesn't make any sense. Okay, I understand turning Texas blue by getting Democratic voters over the border and naturalizing them, and hopefully they'll vote Democrat, but there's more to it. This kind of unfettered uh, kind of for organized crime, for criminal human trafficking cartels, um, I think that it, uh, the, the Democratic Party might possibly be owned uh, and bought and paid for by criminal cartels. That's the only way you can really describe the actions and decisions made by not just the White House, but also politicians in some of these states as well, who seem to be pro-open border on this issue. So this is a huge problem. They're talking in this particular report, 85,000 children are missing. They've mi they've just gone missing, basically. You've got so many profiting uh, stakeholders in here from the foster care system to these charities that are running uh, through churches as well. There's all sorts of potential uh, stakeholders in here that might be the dependency system they're talking about, Mike. That's the, you know, the child care system. It's very profitable. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And apparently this is a problem that's completely out of control. And I want to point to this week, July 4th was the premiere of this independent film, which is making a big splash at the moment called The Sound of Freedom. This is uh, starring uh, Jim uh, Caviliez, and uh, this is uh, making a lot of headway. Um, it premiered on Tuesday, I believe. And so it's, this is something that mainstream Hollywood doesn't really support, uh, as far as I could see, for various reasons. They don't like these types of films that expose child trafficking for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, we have the uh, trailer to this film. Let's let's watch a little bit of the trailer to The Sound of Freedom. Looks like an incredible independent. How many pedophiles you got? 288. How many kids you found? It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen. It has already passed the illegal arms trade. And soon it's going to pass the drug trade. Because you can sell a bag of cocaine one time with a child five to ten times a day. God's children are not for sale. How long have you been doing this? Twelve years now. How many pedophiles you got? 288. How many kids you found? 
Timoteo, o rescata niños, ¿verdad? ¿Puedes ayudarme a encontrar mi hermana? Te lo prometo. So, uh, Patrick, the thing that strikes me about this is that, uh, you know, we've been reporting uh, about children going missing in the UK regime for the last lot of years. I mean, there are a lot of children coming in from Syria, from Libya, from other countries just disappearing in the system. Uh, we've got war zones that, that the West has generally started across the world where this kind of child is, uh, ch trafficking has been going on. Uh, and now it's the southern border of the United States as well. This is, as this uh, film seems to be suggesting, a massive industry now. And of course, we can't really separate the organ issue from that either. Sure. Yeah. No, Ukraine being one of the big thoroughfares uh, for this type of illegal activity. Nobody's wanting to talk about that, of course. That's totally verboten. But uh, so uh, Jim Caviliez uh, and Amira Savino, she's in this film. It's based on a true story. So uh, it looks like a you know a really good good effort by then. I think it might ra raise awareness on this issue. There's so I think this issue is kind of coming up now to become a priority. Um, but it's also in America. It's interesting. This is being characterized in a partisan way. You know the the, the left, the kind of woke left. They're not really wanting to give any you know purchase to this type of film or this issue for some reason because they see it as a a right wing issue now because a lot of right-wing or pro-Trump accounts are promoting it. So you can see how the partisan polarity in politics is even hitting something like this, which everybody should be interested in, that everybody should be supporting this type of film and this type of exposure. But for the reasons of petty politics, yep. it's not. So that's, that's something that to me is kind of shocking. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Uh, let's move on to 9-11. And uh, now, a, a couple of years ago, we ran a symposium uh, on propaganda and 9-11 and so on. And one of the speakers uh, at that was uh, Matt Campbell. Uh, now, we a couple of weeks ago, we had Piers Robinson on the program talking about this website, International Center for 9-11 Justice. Uh, and uh, they've just posted this uh, article, 9-11 Family to Seek Judicial Review of UK Attorney General's Refusal. Uh, of application for fresh inquest. So this is uh, the family of Jeff Campbell, a 31-year-old British man who died on the North uh, Tower of the World Trade Center on the uh, on September 11th. So j let's just have a look and see uh, what they're saying here. Uh, that uh, in August 2021, they submitted a 2,500-page application to then Sir Attorney General Swella Braverman, uh, asking her authority under the Coroner's Act 1988 uh, to apply to the High Court for a fresh inquest, Jeff's original inquest in 2013 had reached the conclusion that the impact of the airplane uh, caused the North Tower's collapse, uh, and it is this finding that we aim to overturn. Uh, last week, after nearly two years of waiting, we received the very disappointing news that Solicitor General Michael Tomlinson, acting on behalf of uh, Attorney General Victoria Prentice, uh, refused our request for the Attorney General's authority to, to apply to the High Court for a fresh inquest. The Solicitor General contends that it is reasonable for the coroner uh, to rely on the findings of the FBI and the 9-11 Commission, but reasonableness is not an applicable legal test, rather its sufficiency. Uh, the coroner of Jeff's original inquest heard no evidence whatsoever that is capable of supporting the conclusion that the impact of the airplane caused the North Tower collapse, legally speaking, to state a conclusion for which no evidence is considered as the very epitome of insufficiency of inquiry. Uh, the Solicitor General also argues that the expert and eyewitness evidence of the pre-planted explosives 
that is uh, an explanation for the tower coming down, is unlikely to yield a different conclusion. Yet the law in this matter is clear. We're not required to prove that a different conclusion is likely in order to be granted a fresh inquest, only that a different conclusion is possible. Uh, the refusal of our application on this ground is in direct con contravention of the law. So they go on to say the Secretary, uh, sorry, Solicitor General also irrationally asserts that assessing whether the Twin Towers collapsed due to pre-planted explosives is beyond the scope of an inquest. Uh, the Attorney General's incoherent refusal of her application is a miscarriage of justice uh, and a cruel obstruction of her search for the truth about Jeff's death. Therefore, we seek judicial review of the Attorney General's legally efficient decision before the three-month deadline of September the 27th. Uh, 2023. Now they're asking for some financial assistance uh, to, to uh, help fund this uh, judicial review and you can get details of that on the International Center for 9-11 Justice website. And if you want to discover uh, a little bit more of the background to this, uh, do watch uh, Propaganda 9-11 and the Global War on Terror, the symposium that we ran. Uh, it's on the front page of the UK column website uh, about two thirds of the way down if you, if you have a look at that. Uh, there are many other presentations there as well. Uh, Patrick, very briefly, any any thoughts on that? Uh, no, not n n not anything other than uh, Matt Campbell and his family have been fighting this now for years. Uh, so, you know, over 10 years at least, maybe 15, 20 years. So it's, it's, it's just taken a whole lot of their lives um, to try to get some clarity and justice on this. Yes. And I think uh, if there's any way to support them or... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they're still running their crowdfunding for legal fees and so forth. Uh, it's a worthy cause because they are absolutely dedicated and they've taken this all the way. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, Debbie, let's come back to you and, uh, well, the World Economic Forum. Yeah, we've. Uh, you'll all be relieved to know there's a new report. So there's a, a flagship report, the top 10 emerging technologies of 2023. So uh, it was only just published in June. So let's flip through and see what those technologies are. Number one, you'll be reassured after the my previous segment on batteries, we're looking at putting batteries into your clothes, into medical devices, uh, basically all e-textiles and healthcare. So smartwatches, sensors, shirts, you name it. The next one, generative artificial intelligence. Basically, that's using, uh, that's machine learning, but it's using the human brain and machines to develop drugs. So drug design on that one. The next one is sustainable aviation fuel. So they can't replace the fleet. You can't replace the aircraft. So what better way than to actually use sustainable fuel? So this is what they're planning between 2022 and 2050. Um, and worryingly, the next one is designer phages. Doesn't that look inviting? Now, this is, this is, well, I'll let you read it and freeze the screen, but phages basically are viruses that infect specific types of bacteria. This isn't a way to reprogram phages and basically play about with our microbiomes. So this is another of their emerging technologies. Then we've got the metaverse and we're going to be going into the metaverse if we've got mental health problems. You can go into multiple mental health metaverses. So there isn't going to be just one. So you can interact with a professional or you can interact socially. 
Then we're going to be getting something called wearable plant sensors. So we're jabbing our plants now. Uh, these are micro needles that will go into plant leaves or stems. And it's going to be a way of farmers monitoring crops if they've got any left. Um, and it's going to be real time adjusting, you know, irrigation or whether they need to put fertilizer on. Then we go on to a new word that I hadn't discovered before, spatial omics. Now, this is apparently molecular mapping of biological processes to unlock life's mysteries. Basically, it's slicing brains so that they can see cellular architecture that's never, ever been seen before. They're going to start off with mouse brains, but you can see where this is going. And then we can go into flexible neuroelectronics. So we it's rewiring us using circuits to interface with our nervous systems. They're going to be using machines, uh, the, the machines that can use their own thoughts. The machines will have thoughts of their own. And these are going to be used in prosthetic limbs too. Then we come to something called sustainable computing, which is all about heat management systems. So how can we use heat from all of these data centers to heat homes? And they're piloting this in Stockholm. Um, and they're using Google data centers as an experimental testbed, I believe. And then lastly, um, AI facilitated healthcare to improve efficiency of healthcare systems. This is going to be integrating more AI into healthcare to anticipate future pandemics. So again, we've got this pandemic preparedness going on ahead. But go and have a look at the WA WEF flagship report. Patrick, I don't know if you've got any thoughts. I mean, how do you see... Uh, their vision of the future. I don't know. I just think it's uh, crazy that uh, the, you need giant Google data centers to uh, tell people how to heat their homes. I wonder how much uh, so-called CO2 is produced by these giant data centers that are providing all this AI brain power so that we could figure out how to turn dials. I don't know. Um, it's crazy. They're still chasing me to put the smart meter in. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, let's uh, come back to the UK and uh, the Bank of England because uh, Bank of England has decided to weigh in on the uh, issue of, well, gender identity and so on. And I suppose in the context of the number of people that are having bank accounts shut down at the moment. And I have to say, Patrick, we're getting emails on a daily basis now from more and more people that are saying, I'm having my bank account shut down or I've had my bank account shut down. Uh, this is getting concerning. Yeah, I don't know. Something's going on. Uh, you know, the high-profile cases, of course, Nigel Farage, uh, Lawrence Fox, uh, to name a few. But uh, anyway, they're having trouble grappling with inflation, okay? But apparently, they've, uh, they've got this one under control. The Bank of England uh, say that people of any gender identity can be pregnant. This is an official statement this week by the Bank of England. Believe it or not, the Bank of England has said that people of any gender identity can be treated as pregnant. As, is, as it pledged to dedicate a floor of its office to offering gender-neutral laboratories. So that's great. Uh, so safe space there at the uh, Bank of England. Wonderful. Um, and the, so here's, here's, they're being pressured as well. The embattled central bank introduced a new family leave policy in June 2021 that included the gender-neutral term birthing parent. Because obviously... <laughs> Pregnant female is offensive, uh, according to its 2022 submission to the charity Stonewall. So Stonewall is kind of policing all these institutions and organizations and generating these reports, So, which campaigns for gay, lesbian, transgender rights. So, you know, these, are, these institutions, Mike, they've got a stark choice. They either adopt 
these uh, language and policies, or they could have raging mobs uh, processing outside of their headquarters. Uh, which one? Which one do you want? So the group has come under fire, talking about Stonewall here for its controversial advice, including recently suggesting that many nurseries are not doing enough to help children recognize their trans identity at a young age. But apparently their efforts are paying off. Let's just look at this uh, graph here. Trans patients diagnosed with gender dysphoria five years or younger. So the big one there, and sort of, if you look at this graph, the numbers are going up vertically there. Um, on the left-hand side, and then uh, the age, the ages are along the bottom, okay, by year. That red uh, peaking mark, the highest red mark, that is 2021. So as you can see, Mike, the age in which this is being diagnosed, gender dysphoria is getting younger and younger, according to the data here from the British Medical uh, Journal. This is a BMJ uh, data report here. So, you know, the work is paying off. They're getting more people to identify this transgender issue at a younger age. So is this a natural occurrence or is this a result of pressure and the building up of this industry, all the counselors, the administrators, the teachers pushing children uh, to consider that they have a problem, that they're somehow born in the wrong gender. And so I think this is a contrived issue that has really become a result of massive social engineering that is well-funded as well. Yes, indeed. And in the meantime, Debbie, uh, the language continues to evolve. Uh, yes, it does. And um, this report in Fox News, um, a UK cancer trust suggests we call a vagina a bonus hole. This is Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust. So I decided to go and look at the trust and they have actually designed a whole new language, a language to use when supporting trans men or non-binary people using the correct language. So now let's go and have a look at what the correct language is. Apparently, I've just highlighted quite a few there. I'll just mention a couple. A bonus hole is an alternative word for the vagina. Um, dead naming is intentionally or unintentionally using the former name of a trans or non-binary person without their consent. You can also use the word front hole I won't go on any more, um, but to the next slide, you can see that we are also using the term microaggression as well. Brief behaviours, verbal or otherwise, that intentionally or unintentionally reveal bias or prejudice and make the target, target feel uncomfortable or distressed. And there are others. So I'll leave you with that. Yeah, where does this end, Patrick? Does, you know, someone brought this up, the term dead naming. This is sort of like what cults do. You change your name when you enter the cult. And if you refer to somebody by their old previous life name, then the cult comes and sets upon the individual to set them straight, that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's huge problems with this. Um, obviously, you're looking at something more akin to a religion, I think, a secular religion that's kind of, you know, mold, meld together with. Uh, a social engineering agenda. So this is why we're seeing this stuff um, being pushed so hard. Uh, so yeah, I don't know where it ends, Mike, but it it's getting ridiculous. But yeah. hey, that's just my opinion, and I'm not a doctor. I'm just a pundit. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much uh, to Patrick and Debbie. We're going to leave it there for today. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra. If you're a UK column member, stick around for that. 
Uh, otherwise, uh, don't forget the uh, uh, Sandy Adams uh, uh, debate uh, tonight at uh, quarter to six uh, on UK Column Live. Um, we'll be back on Monday as usual for a news at 1pm. I hope everybody has a great weekend in the meantime. See you then. Bye-bye.